And it just goes to show that if there's going to be a way for somebody to get a message to you, they will find the way. It's Tuesday, March 12th, and you're listening to the Typed Out Podcast. I am your host, Nick Polifrone. Every week, Typed Out aims to deliver conversations that seek to expand the boundaries of understanding and acceptance. When not assisting New Yorkers like myself find more room in their apartments and lives, Felice Cohen is spinning personal memories into moving works of literature. Her debut novella, What Papa Told Me, tells the story of her grandfather's journey as a young Jewish man from Poland, surviving eight labor and concentration camps to find a new life in America. Originally intended as a gift, the book has gone on to sell over 20,000 copies, and her family history has spurred Felice to become a Holocaust educator. But now she is writing a memoir of her own, and here to walk us through her journey is Felice herself. Felice, thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So we sort of talked about this a little bit just before we started the podcast, and I want to try something new with you, and that is to ask a question, which I'm hoping to ask every consecutive guest after yourself, and that is, how do you feel typed out by society and or culture? How do I feel typed out? Maybe a couple ways. Yeah. Um, one, I think um, being Jewish. Mm-hmm. I grew up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, where there weren't that many Jews on Cape Cod. And then um, I had a relationship when I graduated from college with another woman, and it took me by surprise. Yeah. And I really wasn't ready to tell anyone about it. Um, And then she passed away, and then to deal with it, I had to still kind of keep to myself, so I started to write about it. Um, And it's only really, it's been... 25 years later that uh, what I've written is about to come out that I now feel uh, more comfortable about yeah. sharing that story. Yeah, which I am so excited to dive into that with you because um, so for our listeners, Lisa and I met actually at the event that we did in February, Love Always, which was our combined production with the Devotion Project. And so you had come up to me afterward and I'm so happy that you did. And following that, we grabbed coffee and you shared you know, just a slice of the story that we'll hear today uh, that inspired your memoir. So one, thank you for for attending Love Always. And for two, reaching out and coming up to me afterward. And, you know, I'm so glad that we had that exchange. And here we are now doing a podcast, right? So um, for again, for our listeners listening along, Felice has a memoir coming out. And then also you've written some fairy tales. So you've taken Uh, Some classic fairy tales like Cinderella and Peter Pan that we are quite familiar with and have given them a queer spin. And that is another thing that I'm excited to talk to you about. If you're listening along, uh, buckle up. We're going to have some really cool, fun and exciting things to talk about. But Felice, this episode is made possible by Audible, the leading provider in audiobook titles. As an author, do you have any titles that you would recommend? Well, one of my books is on Audible. Oh, hey. So, yes. Uh, 90 Lessons for Living Large and 90 Square Feet or More. Okay. Um, but I love Audible, listening yes. to those in the car. I drive back and forth a lot from New York to Cape Cod. Yeah. It's great to listen to those yeah. books. And if you go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash typed out, we can download a copy of 90 Lessons for Living Large and 90 Square Feet or More by Felice Cohen. So we encourage you to check that out, audibletrial.com forward slash typed out, and you can listen along to Felice's book for free. 
Hey. Wow. So one thing I do want to ask you about regarding that question is that you were saying that as a Jewish woman, you feel a bit typed out by society. And I was actually having a conversation quite similar to this last night. And I would love for you to expound on that a little bit more if you are willing to, especially as part of your intro, you said that you are a Holocaust educator. Yeah. um, You know, growing up, I knew my grandparents had been in this thing called the Holocaust Mm. and I had no idea really how it related to them. And I thought the Holocaust was just this bad place. And, you know, in middle school, we read night, like most students do. And then my mom came in and spoke about what it was like being a child of these survivors. And the things she was saying, I wasn't really ready to hear. Mm. She's talking about my papa. And so I walked out of the room, and it wasn't until college I discovered that my maternal grandmother, the woman I'm named after, didn't die of cancer, as I'd been told, but she committed suicide. Oh, my God. So that's when I started asking questions about, um, you know, what happened, why she committed suicide. And my grandfather, in order to tell me, had to talk about another subject he never spoke about, and that was the Holocaust. Mm. So he started to tell me what happened to her. She was in Auschwitz. They ended up meeting in Bergen-Belsen. My grandfather was in eight different camps. And so I wrote about her in college. It got a lot of feedback, and that's when my grandfather said, hey, will you write about me? I never thought it would be a book. I yeah. never thought it would be endorsed by Ellie Wiesel or taught in schools around the country um, or be translated into other languages. I was just writing it as a gift. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I wasn't always really comfortable telling people I was Jewish, but now here I had this book about the Holocaust and I was speaking around the country about this story. And for the first time, I felt more comfortable about it, Mm. Um, kind of coming out as Jewish, being really comfortable and honored that I was able to tell his story. Yeah. And that's a very real thing to have a little bit of a stigma around being Jewish, correct? I mean, there, every everything has a stereotype that comes with it. But can you speak a little bit more about why you may have felt a little um, fear, I guess, or just worry about confiding that to people? Absolutely. I think it, it was fear. I think it was afraid of being, um, you know, people have anti-Semitism and mm. people hurting me or not wanting are not liking me because I was Jewish um, and seeing, you know, learning about the Holocaust and what people are doing. And even today, anti-Semitism is on the rise. I mean, in, in France, it's really bad in mm. this country, you know, even here in Brooklyn, how many incidents have we seen just this year? Yeah. And it's, it's pretty sad. Um, it's disheartening. And, you know, all we can do, you know, we say, and when we're teaching about the Holocaust is never forget and really talking about it so that these things don't happen again. But, you know, these little rumblings of things happening, you know, I'm glad my grandfather isn't here now to see this. Yeah. I think it would scare him because he, you know, a lot of questions students would ask him when we would speak in schools is why didn't you just leave and you know you didn't think what was going to happen happened yeah so you didn't know but now it's like you you see these warning signs all over the place and you don't know where it could lead and you just hope we have uh, matured enough as a country yeah. and as a people to stop this but it's just still happening yeah well, and it's not just to jews yeah absolutely and that's like i i remember saying just before we kicked off the panel portion of our event that, you know, everybody thought, or I would say everybody who was generally outside of the community thought that once the queer community achieved marriage equality, that the fight was won and that you could rest on your laurels and be done with it. And as we know, that's not the case. These, there is consistently a fight because the issue is never completely resolved. Exactly. As you were just, you know, referencing with these pockets of anti-Semitism that are popping up, you know, and it's like, how many times do you hear in recent news of like a neo-Nazi spark up or something that, how does that not trigger some 
response or fear or hesitance to want to tell people, you know, and celebrate your identity in that way, you know? So there's a lot of, a lot of things to be wary of, but that's hopefully what typed out is here to do is to expand those boundaries of understanding, expand those boundaries of acceptance and say, this is what it's like to be in my shoes, you know, and perhaps it might be more than just being Jewish, but these intersections of identity as it were. And it's like how much overlap there is between issues that it's like, it's not just a small community or a large community as it were, that's affected by these things. It's, it's everyone. It ricochets through everyone, you know, we're all affected by them. And so I'm hoping that like through gaining understanding, through listening to other people and their stories like yours, that there are folks that get it. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. But I would love to talk about your next bit of writing, which is your memoir that is upcoming. This is such a fascinating story to me. And I can only imagine as being the one to have lived through it, uh, experiencing it, because there is a bit of like a preternatural or supernatural element to it, I suppose. And like, again, having uh, lost my mom, sometimes you look for signs from beyond. And I think that's one element that is part of the story. So without that, I mean, without me kind of like revealing much, if you could please uh, share for our listeners your story. Sure. So I kind of feel like this book is a trilogy, the third in a trilogy. Uh, My first book was about my grandfather and the Holocaust. The Mm. second book was about living in a 90 square foot New York City studio and being an organizer. And both of those topics really started when I had graduated from college, where this third book really begins. And I had graduated from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I had a summer job uh, at the school. And I, you know, I loved my boss was this big time figure. And she was, you know, tough and great. And I loved the job being an orientation counselor. And then I ended up working after I graduated there. And we got to be closer friends and I guess I developed a crush on her Mm. and um, one thing led to another she had a partner Um, but the kicker was that she was 34 years older than I was and I was 23 and very impressionable age and I was a time of my life where I didn't know what I was doing with my life you know your 20s you're facing the real world you're lost and here was this woman who just became enamored with me and we just we started having an affair And she had a partner of 12 years and it threw me for a loop, but it was also the best thing to happen to me because I really had nothing else going on with my life. I'd moved home. I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was lost. And here was someone who was just thought I could do anything and was supportive. And um, after a few months, I ended up, she created a job in her office and I, I moved back to my alma mater back to Amherst and we had this affair and it was crazy I mean I think back to it I mean there were no cell phones then so we weren't texting and all that it was we wrote a lot of letters at the beginning and so you know the letters I have all of the letters but you know it was it was a kind of an interesting time of self-discovery and meanwhile during that time I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life I had a potential writing job in New York but I didn't want to leave her uh, my grandfather had asked me to start writing his story so I was starting to do it then um, and I was really trying to figure out what I was going to do and she kind of gave me she kind of fulfilled all my waking moments um, 
and it was exciting on a huge aspect yeah. and it was scary you know you're sneaking around and and I, I wasn't sure if maybe you know parts of my own sexuality of of being getting used to being the other woman kind of grew some roots at that point mm. um, because subsequent relationships after that were a lot based in secrecy um, and you know when you're 23 things they say that can happen to you kind of have long-lasting effects yeah. and I think they might have and during that year um, towards the end of that year we got caught and at the end of that year I ended up leaving Amherst and, and taking that job in New York and saying goodbye to her and we remained close um, all those years but a few years later she died of cancer and it was in dealing with her death I had to deal with that whole year of the affair yeah and it's something you know I could feel myself getting choked up I've never talked about it really I've been writing about it and writing about it and at first I wasn't sure it was going to end up as a book it was really just therapeutic yeah to you know to write about it to get it off my chest and on a whim I entered it in a um a, a chapter in a writing contest and it won and then I remember this agent came up and said so do you have the rest of the book? And I thought, you know, what book? <laughs> um, sure. Um, but I remember about six months after she died, I was at this party for the News Women's Club of New York. I had just moved to New York. Everything was new. Um, I just joined this club. And the stranger came up to me and she said, um, I'm a medium. And because I'm a wise ass, I said, I'm a small. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, no, really, I'm a medium. I talked to the dead. And I thought, okay, you know, another New York City wingnut. Yeah. Um, I'd already been scammed out of money in a pyramid scheme. But she said, no, really. Um, and she started saying things about Sarah that there's no way this woman could have known that. Yeah. Right before Sarah died, she gave me the book, The Lovely Bones, and wrote in it, watch out, I'll be watching you. And so this medium said, Sarah uh, said, this woman wants you to know she's still there watching you. And I thought, what? How, how would anybody know that? And then right before we stopped speaking, she said, um, the medium said, was her name Sally? Now, Sarah's whole life, her family called her Sally. And so I remember just standing there stunned. Like, there's no way she could know that. Yeah. And, and I, I love that kind of stuff. I mean, you can't dismiss that. There's no, no way. Yeah. So it, it was comforting. What was the internal monologue when you had this woman that you don't know from a crack in the sidewalk come up to you and reveal something so personal? Again, she wasn't doing it to affront. She was doing it to deliver a message, which we now know is quite clear, because how could she know that, you know? And what was what was that internal monologue to, to sort of be receiving that information? How many years? How many years had it been since then? This had actually been, um, it was maybe almost a year after she passed. Okay. Six months to a year after yeah. she passed. And um, I remember just, I think I got the chills. And then I, and I, it was a little scary at first. And then yeah. I remember she took my arm and told me. And then when she let go of my arm, I thought I wanted her to touch me again. Because being connected to her made me feel connected somehow to Sarah. And I, I remember driving home and... I was afraid to look in my rearview mirror. I thought I was going to see yeah. this woman's face, uh, Sarah's face behind me. And I, then I was comforted. And I thought, well, maybe she is watching me. So yeah. maybe I can really drive fast home. But no, I just, yeah. <laughs> um, I just thought, okay, maybe, maybe, there, maybe this is true. And maybe she is watching me because there's no way she could have, have known that. And I took it as a comfort. Yeah. And, um, and it was actually that night that I began writing. Um, about Sarah. Mm -hmm. I had a memory and that's what 
won the chapter contest. And I thought, okay, everything kind of happens for a reason. Yeah. When something like that, so divine, right, in that way happens, it's almost like you, how do you even begin to ignore that? Because here's someone that should, by all intents and purposes, know nothing about you, know nothing about your relationship with Sarah. And to come up to you, grab you by the arm and offer this information, this vital information. How do you, how do you even begin to process that? And then deny it, you know, and say that there, there, there isn't some sort of spiritual involvement here. And it just goes to show that if there's going to be a way for somebody to get a message to you, they will find the way, <laughs> you know, yeah. just the, the way that things line up. It's, it's remarkable. And again, as I said, just having somebody, having lost someone so dear to me, you do really begin to look for ways in which you can connect with that person, you know, to, to find a bridge somehow between this world and the next especially if it's someone that is so tethered to a very vital point of your life, as you mentioned, you know, it's not only being 23 and impressionable, a young impressionable woman and figuring out, you know, where you fit in the puzzle of this world, but also kind of stepping into your own identity, as it were, and exploring maybe facets that it sounds like, you know, were new to you at that point, you know, so there was a lot of things sort of combined in that whole experience. And for anyone that is listening along if you're not familiar with the lovely bones is a story of a young woman who tells her story from heaven so for her to write that message in the book and then for this medium to stop you you know with a message from someone in heaven i mean that is like that is crazy that's so crazy and did you I'm, have any moments like that with your mom after she passed um i've had yes i've had moments um where there were definitely messages that felt like they were coming through. I've never had anybody stop me on the street and share something. It's been more through dreams, actually. Okay, talk about crazy alignment and how things just kind of happen. Uh, Six months after my mom passed, so my mom passed from cancer as well in 2011. And so six months after she passed, I was living back at home in Connecticut with my father. And I just remember waking up from a dream that was so vivid, you know, when you have those dreams that you're just like, how, how is this not reality? Because everything feels so real. And in the dream, I was sitting in what felt like a, a holding cell. And it was like, I was waiting for somebody to, to come and visit in this sort of cell that I was in very Spartan, um, with one door in and out. And so the door opens and my mom comes in And with her is this presence that I can't see and I can't describe, but I can feel it. Like all I can tell you is the feeling of this presence, which wasn't ominous, but is very much serious. And so I just kind of clocked this presence sort of like in the corner and just kind of monitoring. It just felt like this sort of monitoring of our interaction. And the conversation that I had with my mom was very much the one that you might expect to have at that point after someone has passed, like are you okay? You know, were you ready? The typical questions that you might ask someone just to sort of gain clarity, both in your own perspective and perhaps theirs, you know? And so it was a very honest, candid conversation. And I just remember waking up from the dream and just being in that haze of like, what just happened? But where this comes into like that whole dream of this presence also in the room, my good friend Allison had just moved to the city and eventually she and I would become roommates. And so she had come for a week just to, you know, lay over in, in New York City as she was doing a play upstate. 
and we were walking, you know, through Greenwich Village and talking. And she was telling me about a book that she was reading about spiritual encounters. And in that book, she describes what this entity was to me. Like somebody had written about what this entity was. And like just through her telling what she had read in the book, there was no question about it that that's exactly what it was. And it was basically, again, a type of medium that helps uh, relay people who have recently passed over to the next world. And I was like, that feels that's it. Like you've just hit the nail on the head. And it was one of those moments, full body chills, like where you kind of get that reaffirmation of something. And uh, I didn't dream much of my mom following that. And this is where the other conflation of memory comes in is that I did have yet another dream about my mom, which again, this was when I was still living at home. And it was just a dream where it feels like you fall into a picture, you know, And again, this was relatively recently after she had passed and it was us living in a prior house in in Milford, Connecticut. It was Christmas. And I just remember like sort of reliving that Christmas morning. And I was probably, I don't know, six, seven years old at the time. And that's when I came downstairs and I was sitting in the kitchen and just kind of like eating breakfast. And my dad came down and both of us being in the haze of, of sleepiness. He was like, I just had a dream about your mom. And I was like, me too, you know, and he goes, it was, it actually reminds me of this picture. And he goes upstairs, grabs the picture, comes downstairs and puts it in front of me. And it was the exact dream that I just had the exact memory of Christmas so many years ago. And it was just like, how did that happen? How did we both just have the same dream about my mom in the same night where like it could be, you know, let's say that that picture would happen to be in the hallway that we passed every day. It wasn't the case that picture was on one of the boards that you know you assemble the picture board for the funeral it was on that board in my dad's room and it had existed there for the past six months where he I mean I never had a reason to go into my dad's room unless it was just to like I don't know bring him a cup of tea or something but I was never the boards were so like tucked away you know so just like again how do things happen like that the the random circumstance or coincidence as it were whether it happens to be uh, distilled into one moment, or it's a ricochet of something that happens, you know, two years prior where you had the book from Sarah that she wrote the message in. And then you get this woman who's a medium that stops you and's like, I have a message for you <laughs> that then leads into this memoir that you are, you are now writing and almost done with. Is that correct? Yeah. Almost done. Doing final edits now. And how does it feel to sort of, as you said, like unexpected, right? Didn't even plan to write the chapter, which was then successful and and led you to this, this book venture and now kind of coming near towards the process of completion. You said that it has been somewhat therapeutic. Immensely therapeutic. And it's like, you're really just sitting there having this conversation with a therapist and, and they're helping you get through you know, everything. I mean, the therapist from during the affair, helping me kind of sort things out and not feel guilty and mm. figuring out my sexuality. And then years later, meeting back up with the therapist and, and talking about what has happened since. Yeah. And being stuck in some ways. Do you feel like it? it's sort of like a full circle in the self-exploration? Like, because there's a difference between having the dialogue with somebody about, you know, what happened. But when you're sitting down and, you know, as someone who writes myself when you're it's you and that intimate connection between either you and paper or you and your computer it's different because there's nobody else in the room right did you find something through that process within yourself like just putting those words on paper and retelling that story that way that maybe 
locked some things into place or kind of pulled back the curtain on some things or definitely pull back the curtain I mean there were many times writing I would just be crying writing and I can't and then I think I can't share this this is too personal Uh, my aunt just read a copy this week and she read it in three days so she couldn't put it down and she said as your mother read this because there are sex scenes in it and my dad has edited it and I just said I have to to make this as authentic as I can I have to put it all out there and and that can only help me yeah. Um, and it can only, you know, like they say, and I think it's Alcoholics Anonymous, you're only as shameful as your secrets or whatever yeah. that line is. Yeah. And and it's true. I mean, I felt a lot of a shame in this. People I have been close with for years never knew about it. Yeah. Um, people I was friends with when I was at UMass, when I worked at UMass. And I'm going to have to tell them or they're going to find out. And there's a little fear in me of that, but I can't let that stop me because I have not been able to kind of get past a lot of that Um, in all my subsequent relationships. I think it has impeded, you know, the full potential of those relationships since. Yeah. And one of the other things that we talked about when we grabbed coffee was Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. And she talks about that and how you focus on one part of your story and you continue to repeat that portion of your story until you process it and move past it and also where shame falls in that as well but i think again airing it all out telling all everything everything it's like you can't hold aspects back and so in that process of really going into detail and putting it in front of your aunt and your dad and your mom i imagine must one feel so liberating too to just kind of exonerate yourself of that you know and also celebrate it in a way and say like this was a really momentous time in my life and you know a very meaningful connection in my life with someone uh and to be able to share it and be so open you know that must one open the door for people to really more genuinely connect with you because i always think that what you bring to a relationship you get in return which is honesty and then people just want to reciprocate that you know and being so honest and share things with you did you find that with perhaps the folks that have read a copy of the manuscript already that will share very honest things about their lives absolutely you know a friend of mine who i've been friends with since i was six she said to me once you know you had to write i started writing this before you know really my grandfather's book came out she said you had to write your grandfather's truth first Mm. and all his just about what happened in the holocaust and the camps and before the war and after the war until you could then write about yourself and i think in writing about that and freeing myself i've talked you know to certain other people and they in turn have told me just turned around and told me secrets Mm. they've been keeping and we both kind of just felt just so free of that of that burden of holding on to that and that shame of feeling embarrassed and and this was 25 years ago when it happened and times are so much different today you know people were out then but it's so it's so different now yeah but there's still a level of secrecy absolutely and even today like i still think that there are uh, people who feel the need to carry secrets you know it comes right back to the start of this conversation of of you know even just feeling the fear of wanting to tell people that you're jewish and you know like and the same thing happens with the queer community as well yes there are definitely people that are trailblazing and being fully authentically themselves like billy porter love him and like his just beautiful ensemble that he wore to the oscars we need people like him to help champion the way so that it opens the door for the rest of us to really live our truth so the next thing i want to talk about is your fairy tales um or the fancy tales as they're referred to and 
So did you write these stories before or after the memoir? Where where did they fit in, in the, the journey of Felice, as it were? I've been working on the memoir for a while. It really just started off as a therapeutic exercise. And um, I got the ideas for the fancy tales a long time ago. It was like, I think maybe 1999 when I first got an idea for it, um, you know, Cinderella was the first one, and it's called She's a Fella. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who I am named after, her name was Fella. As as Cinderella is now renamed Fella in, in the fancy tales. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so I had the idea, and I thought, you know what? And then I started looking. I thought, are there fairy tales with gay characters? Because... There are a lot of gay people who read fairy tales and it's always the prince and the princess and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be funny if she's a fella had a Doc Martin instead of a glass slipper? And um, and then I just started thinking of all these things. And and I thought, well, then I had the idea for Peter Pan and Peter Pansy. He's named after the Tappan Zee Bridge. Yeah. It was an Indian and, and all these and Jack <laughs> and the Badstock and Sleeping Booty and, and all these other ones. I just They just started all of them started coming and and I wanted to have kind of a similar theme in them and that all the magic happens in Central Park yeah. um, just because it was kind of fun and um, I try to you know they're all modern day they all take place in New York City and they each have at least one gay character Jack in the bad stock grows up his he has two moms and uh, they had to sell the family cow remember those cow motifs that were all around the city and um the giant is bernie is based on bernie madoff hiding yeah oh my gosh <laughs> um, so it's it's trying to use like modern day thing it was just fun yeah no they're great so i've i've read she's a fella and peter pansy and the one the thing that i love the most about them is that you really just kind of take the stories and crack them open and give them like infusion of queerness in all aspects and to have these sort of tropes that you grow up on or these very familiar stories that you grow up on. I mean, look at Disney. Disney has taken the stories and created a whole life and platform and business and corporation and empire around them. And they are very celebrated by the gay and queer community. This is another conversation as well, but we're starting to see more of a a spin on how the stories are being told like frozen for example isn't all about the princess finding the prince it's about her relationship with another woman in this case happens to be her sister it's familial and it's not about the romance or the the heteronormativity let's just put that out there too i love that you take very similar themes and you very much modernize them and just kind of put them in this really celebrated place of queerness You know, like the fairy godmother is known as G. (laughs) Love that. And like she's a tuxedoed, short haired lesbian and like has these magic rings that she uses to generate the magic and the Doc Martens and the fact that it takes place. the, The ball is at the tavern on the green and it's just so fresh and very modern and aware. And I, you know, just as a gay man reading it, appreciating that. And I can only imagine that an audience picking it up who would feel the same would also just feel this level of celebration in the work that you've created. So thanks. Yeah, of course. We have She's a Fellow. We have Peter Pansy, uh, Jack and the Badstock. And uh, yeah, there's and there's a bunch more. I've got Sleeping Booty, uh, Beauty and the Butch. Nice. That one's in Brooklyn. Nice. Um, yeah, there's. And they're all published and accessible? Um, only the first three. She's a fella, Peter Pansy, and Jack and the Badstock. But mm-hmm. I'm actually going to re-put them all, have the other ones come out and put them all in one book. Great. So like an anthology. Yeah. 
Excellent. And they're beautifully illustrated as well by Muggins, right? Yeah. My friend Maggie, she's, she moved back to the UK, but she lived in Brooklyn for years. Well, as the anthology becomes released, let us know. And for anybody listening along, we'll make sure that you can find out where you can grab your copy. You said that you were possibly working on a trilogy. So the first story being the story of your grandfather. Let's find out a little bit about the, the middle book, 99 Lessons. Sure. So professional organizer, is this a correct bridge to make? Do you know Marie Kondo? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Would she be considered a... <laughs> <laughs> yes, she's a professional organizer. Terry, who is with us, roll her eyes. <laughs> yeah, she is um, the guru right now. Yeah. Um, no, she's great. You know, there are so many organizers out there. Everyone has their own system. Yeah. And, you know, I moved to New York and I worked as a professional organizer when I first got to New York and I worked with billionaires and supermodels and TV personalities and hoarders and everybody in between. Yeah. And um, you know, a lot of people, especially in New York where space is limited, um, you really organize. And, yes. and while Marie Kondo says everything should give you joy, my take is that you should have more time in your life to do the things that give you joy or do the things you enjoy doing. Yeah. And part of the reason we don't have all that time is because of clutter. Yeah. Um, and we have to clean stuff. We have to move stuff. We have to work to pay for the stuff. We don't even have time to use. So that's really my takeaway. Yeah. For me, I didn't even really think of like professional organizing until this sort of pop culture element of it. But I love how you're applying it to like the quality of life, which she does as well, you know, like find the things that spark joy, but the quality of life and how we do accumulate stuff. And when <laughs> I have to confess, when I found out that you were a professional organizer and I knew that you were coming over to record today, I was like, I need to make sure things are clean and put away. <laughs> Nobody um, does that. Yeah, well, it's true. Before I come over, yeah. Yeah. So what have been your some of your experiences like as a professional organizer, some of the people that you've worked with and how implementing your practices have improved their quality of life. I'm sure you've received some testimonials from your work. Oh yeah, I've, I've often called myself um, a professional, an uh, organizational therapist hmm. because people will cry when, I'm, when I leave. They're so happy. People who haven't seen the top of their couches or their dining room tables in years because it's piled with stuff. People are overwhelmed. They don't know how to, where to begin, how to do it. And I come in and I want to give them their quality of life back. So I'm not overwhelmed by their stuff. For me, it's like a puzzle. I just, I, I see a system of how we can get rid of stuff and what you really need. And, and I don't tell anybody you have to get rid of this. I just try to help them see that their lives could be better without all this stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember working with a woman, I called her rat woman. She had over a hundred lab rats in her apartment. Like actual live rats. Actual live rats. They were white. Um, I'll never forget pink eyes. They were in glass cages that were stacked and teetered on top of each other. She was against experimentation on them. And I guess she worked in a lab and she would take them. Her, she, she was a hoarder. And when I walked in, you couldn't even open the door. There was just stuff everywhere, bags. There was barely any space to walk. And I thought, oh, how am I going to do this? And my first goal was to just make a clear path to the door. In case a rat got loose, I could get out of there. Oh, my God. And I spent four <laughs> hours, and we filled up maybe 20 bags of garbage, and we got rid of so much stuff. And she was so happy when I was done. Her sister had hired me to organize it, um, but I couldn't go back. It was one of those jobs. You know, I started, and it just kind of made, literally made my skin crawl. Um, but I have worked with um, really a number of people, and they're just so happy when you're done. They are just thrilled. And, and I don't just help get rid of the stuff, but I really try to create systems because I don't want to come back next week and redo it because it's a mess. But if you have, if everything has a home in your home, 
you know, when you come home with the groceries, you put the eggs in your sock drawer? No, you put the eggs probably on the same shelf in the fridge. Mm -hmm. And the same is true when you come home from a trip. You know, laundry goes in the laundry basket, your toiletries go in the toiletry box or wherever things go, your sweaters go in one place. And if you can create a home for things, it makes organizing a cinch yeah. to take you no time. It's, yeah. it's those things that don't have a home that you need to really ask, why do I have it? You know, what's it? What's the purpose? Yeah, what's the purpose? But then also like I find, especially just even in cleaning up, I, I've heard, I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert. Are you familiar with her? Eat, Pray, Love. I believe it was in Big Magic. She talks about change the energy in the room. Do something. Like if you're feeling stuck, stifled, whatever it happens to be, change the energy in the room. It could be light a candle, uh, light some incense, or in this case, clean clean something because I feel like that too is representative or creates energy chaos like if you see something visually that creates this sort of uh, frenzied energy you are likely to take that on as a reflection of your environment right and so when you even just being able or even just cleaning the apartment feels good and it feels like you kind of do that sort of mental reset and if we're able to do that in our everyday lives and create a little bit more, one, mental space, but also like space to enjoy the things that make us happy, it's invaluable. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. I mean, it's almost spring, so it's a great time to do it. Yes. And I often tell people, you know, can you get rid of one thing a day? And they say yes. I said, well, try that for a week. That's, that's a number of things. May I put you on the spot and ask sure. what Felice Cohen's like top three suggestions and like organization might be before you go out and buy anything like storage containers see what you can get rid of because you don't want to be storing stuff you don't need um and i always say if you can get rid of between one to five things a day i mean it could be a tupperware missing a lid it could be that sock with a hole in it it could be a paper clip i don't care if you can get rid of five things a day up to there and and when you start you go well that was easy i don't need this pencil that is broken or a stub and and these little things add up and then if you just it's baby steps um, another thing I, I tell people to do is set the timer on your phone. Okay, everybody has a phone. Put it for 30 minutes, put it for an hour, and then set the timer and just go. Work on one shelf, work on one area, work on just your sock drawer. I don't care. When that timer goes off, stop. You're done. What happens is you've begun to do it and you see, well, that wasn't so hard. And when you tell yourself you only have to do your socks, you're less you know, you're less apt to quit. You say, well, I can just do my socks. And then what happens when the timer ends or when you've done those five things, you go, well, that was easy. Maybe I'll reset the timer. Maybe I'll try to do five more things. And it's those little things that really help you add up. Um, when I work with kids, I always have dice and we roll the dice. Well, the kids roll the dice and whatever number they get, that's how many items or toys or whatever they have to get rid of. And, you know, kids might be little, but they have huge hearts. Yeah. Um, my mom loves this. When I come home, you will go room, room to room with the dice. Um, and you can either, you know, for garbage or for donation, whatever the stuff is for, or even just moving it into the room it belongs in. I always think energy begets energy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just do something, you know, get up and just do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost like forming a habit, you know, where it's like if you do set aside that time, if you click your timer on your phone and set aside 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it happens to be each day, it then begins to create something inside of you that like maybe you felt overwhelmed by all the cleaning that you had to do. But if you compartmentalize it and take 30 minutes at a time, an hour at a time, it then, I mean, this is great advice for anything in life that feels so overwhelming. The more that you look at the the problem that's present in front of you, the small one, just take it one at a time, one at a time. And eventually that whole big looming thing that feels like this big dark cloud or, you know, a huddle of clothes in the corner, 
will eventually gradually disappear. People always ask, how do you write a whole book? I said, well, you start with one word, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, please thank you for sharing all the wisdom, the professional organizing. Please check out the Fancy Tales listeners and where can we grab copies? Are they are the ones that are released? Are they like on they're Amazon? on Amazon? Okay, yep. great. You can always go to my website, FeliceCohen.com. Excellent. And social? Yeah, I'm. You know, they're all listed at my website, but I'm on okay. Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and whatever else. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. So it's all there. And when can we get our hands on the memoir? Um, soon. I hope. I'm hoping. Um, in a couple months, we'll have all the edits in and. Get it hot off the presses. Very excited and looking forward to that. And also the story of your grandfather as well is available. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that actually yeah. is coming out soon in Japanese. Yes. Oh, hey. Yes. Yeah, so if you'll be there teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely incorporate it. So Felice, thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing your story. And just, I mean, one for coming to Love Always and creating this connection. And I really, really value it. So thank you. And cannot wait for your memoir. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. And then one more time, if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash typed out, you can also get a copy of 90 Lessons for Living Large in 90 Square Feet or More. Yes. And you will get all the tips from Felice Cohen on how to organize your apartment. And as always, I have been your host, Nick Polifrone. This has been a typed out production and we shall see you next week. Felice, thank you. Thank you. 